The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to The Waves for Thursday, November 8th, the It Wasn't All Crap edition. I'm June Thomas, Senior Managing Producer of Slate Podcast. Christina Calcerucci, who would normally be your host today, has been covering the midterms pretty much around the clock, so I'm here in her place. And she will join us later, though, to talk about the election results. But right now, right here in our Brooklyn studio, I'm joined by one of the hosts of By the Book, Kristen Meinzer. Hey, Kristen. Hi, so glad to be here. Thank you for coming in. And by WNYC producer extraordinaire and former Waves producer, Verlin Williams. Hey, Verlin. Hey, June. Hey, Kristen. How hey. y'all doing? <laughs> All right, so we're taping as we usually do early on Wednesday morning, and I'm wondering how much sleep you both got. Uh, oh, my gosh. I, I slept less than six hours. <laughs> I was at an election party that was pretty rowdy, and then eventually I'm like, I got to go home. I need to get some sleep. I'm going to be on the waves tomorrow. <laughs> and then, of course, I stayed up half the night with my phone, yeah. just reading everything coming in on my phone. What about you? While Maryland. you all, because I was, um, we were on email chain and you guys were emailing like, look at this Twitter feed, yes. look at that. I was doing all that from my bed and I was watching um, one of the holiday movies. <laughs> oh, oh yes, yes. Way so, to self-care. I opted out of all the election parties. <laughs> wow. I was trying to be really sensible, like a bit like you, Kristen, except I was even more sensible because I was like, I got to stay in, I got to watch CNN, I've got to watch PBS. <laughs> and I... You know, I did. I turned off the TV at like 1130 and I'm like, OK, I'm going to bed and I'll just get up early tomorrow and read about it. But of course, like you're so curious and pumped. It was impossible to sleep. So uh, no matter how sensible I tried to be, that was not actually mm. possible. On today's show, we're going to talk about the election results with Christina. Then we'll discuss the women targeted holiday movies that take over entire cable channels at this time of year. And finally, how Brazilian women are responding to the election of President Jair Bolsonaro, an unrepentant, misogynist, racist autocrat. What a great pronunciation. Wow. Jair Bolsonaro. That was amazing. That's yes. not how I say it. Presidente de Brasil. Oh. Wow. Do you speak Portuguese? No, but. I once uh, <laughs> did a, a radio show on WPFW and it came on after the Brazilian show, which was uh-huh. Um Birimbao, Use Programa de Música Brasileira. Whoa, and so June, I just, you're incredible. I just heard oh, that. Yeah, every- that's all, <laughs> that's <laughs> all I can that's say, too. Can Obrigado. That's <laughs> so I just Lisbon. heard it with your host, Judici King, who was actually Judy uh-huh. King, uh, who was an amazing, like one of the kindest, nicest people I've ever met. And I haven't seen her in about 30 years. Um Judy King, if you're listening, Judy Chikingi, <laughs> right in. But anyway. And of course, we can't forget Say Plus. This week, we are going to talk about the also important, is it sexist for men to whistle in public? Um, if you're not a Slate Plus member, you can start your free two-week trial by visiting slate.com slash the waves plus. I am so glad, by the way, that whistling is getting the attention it deserves. I'm a very <laughs> keen whistler, and I've just been wanting to talk about whistling for, well, forever, really. Long overdue. Very important topic. Edge of my seat. Can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody, you got to join Slate Plus to hear this conversation. (laughs) All right, let's get started. So two years after the election of Donald Trump, Americans went to the polls once again. There were more women candidates than ever before and more elected than ever before. We had some notable firsts. The first two Muslim women elected to the House, the first two Native American women, Massachusetts' first black congresswoman, Texas's first Latina congresswoman. There were exciting young female victors like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Lauren Underwood and Abby Finkenauer. And Donna Shalala flipped a seat in Florida to become one of the oldest House freshmen at 77. But many of the female politicians with the highest political profiles lost or seemed doomed to lose their races. Stacey Abrams in Georgia, Heidi Heitkamp in North Dakota, and Claire McCaskill in Missouri. And while a New York Times push notification this Wednesday morning said abortion opponents won big, the story for abortion-related measures seems mixed, with Oregon soundly rejecting an initiative that would have restricted public funding for abortion, while in West Virginia and Alabama, anti-choice measures won. Christina, (laughs) after a very little sleep, you're awake and you're here with us. Let's begin with a really broad question. Which race had you most on edge on Tuesday night? That's a great question, June. I would say that the race I was most dreading was the Heidi Heitkamp race in North Dakota. 
However, it didn't surprise me. I wouldn't say I was on edge because it's not like I thought it was going to come out differently. She lost her Senate seat um, and everyone predicted she would lose her Senate seat. I mean, I don't think she came out ahead in all but one poll uh, over the course of the campaign. But that one was particularly emotionally salient for me because of her vote against Brett Kavanaugh. And not only that, but the the man who took her seat, Congressman Kevin Kramer, had come out saying, you know, I all the women in my family can't understand this movement toward victimization. They're these strong prairie women who don't ever think of themselves as victims like all these other women out here talking about sexual assault. And, oh, well, even if he did commit sexual assault, should that disqualify him from the Supreme Court? And look, Christine Blasey Ford says nothing even happened. It was an attempted rape, Mm. not an actual rape. So to me, that race almost looked like a miniature Clinton-Trump situation where it was this woman who really stuck her neck out there to oppose Brett Kavanaugh in what a lot of people thought was political suicide. I don't see it that way because I don't think she ever had a chance. I mean, North Dakota is incredibly conservative. It went to Trump by more than 30 points. She only won her election back in 2012 by 3,000 votes. Since her win... Republicans had enacted a voter ID law that was widely considered to be meant to disenfranchise Native American voters who are a big part of her base. So she she wasn't set to win. But watching that race turn out the way I thought it would was incredibly disappointing. And to me, felt like a little miniature Trump victory where it was like, oh, yeah, people do like hearing misogynist rhetoric (laughs) and don't reward people for standing up for women. Mm. I think the the race that has most of us sad and, you know, it was the first thing we all mentioned this morning was Stacey Abrams. That felt like she had a really great chance of becoming the first black woman elected governor. She seemed like a great candidate. She seems like a really strong, strong woman who just is so easy to admire. She also writes romance novels, which I just love as part <laughs> of any politician's biography. At the time that we're taping on Wednesday morning, she still hasn't conceded, but it's not looking good for her chances. How did that race seem to you, Christina? I I feel like I reacted to the, this one in a really weird way where I I definitely expected her to win just based on how well she was doing in the polls. And all the news that I was hearing about Kemp, her opponent, basically stealing his own election or, you know, using every trick in the book to try to suppress voter turnouts, purge voter rolls. I really thought she was going to pull through. But the speech she gave at the end of the night last night was so electrifying that I can't believe that this is the end of the road for her. Mm. And the fact that she did so well in the race and got the whole nation excited about her made me optimistic about her future. But I last night, the way she conducted herself and she was already on the national stage, a lot of people watched that speech. Um, I just that to me reminded me that it's not just about who wins the offices, but it's about the infrastructure that's being built for future elections. And I see her as somebody and the people who worked for her as people who will be integral in future races. I'm just going to say quickly, let's just hear part of that speech for anyone who didn't stay up late and hasn't yet had a chance to catch it. And because we have been fighting this fight since our beginnings, we have learned a fundamental truth. Democracy only works when we work for it. When we fight for it. When we demand it. And apparently today when we stand in lines for hours to meet it at the ballot box, that's when democracy works. And one of the, th- I mean, into in, in that point, Christina, as far as like a, a, a template almost for um, for running a race and getting um, people that have never voted before to vote and not thinking about, OK, moving to the center and getting, you know, um, Republicans or people that are more conservative to vote for you, but really going after those people that f- have never been spoken to before, you know, totally. And I and I think like that to me has been the most inspiring part of her story and also just realizing just how long she's 
been at this, you know, at this game. It's not something that she just decided to do because it was, you know, advantageous for this campaign. Like she has been trying to get people civically engaged for years. Um, even, you know, a lot of the things that were thrown at her as far as her debt. Um, a lot Mr. of that. says she, she owes more than $200,000. Yeah. Um, you know, on student loans, credit card on student. credit card who, debt. Who among us? Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, and also she point, you know, it gives her a chance to point out that, you know, she supports her parents who are yes. ministers and don't have health insurance. Yes. She adopted her brother's daughter. Her, her dad brother. was dealing with cancer, like yeah. health health problems that, you know, like the things that so many Americans are dealing mm-hmm. with, you know. Right. So even though she went to Spelman and the University of Texas and Yale Law School, this, the kind of things that she is facing are exactly the things that voters, people, humans can relate to. Yeah, she gets criticized for making uh, $400,000 over two years. You know, but where I think people that... that I'm just, I love Stacey. And I, yeah. mm-hmm. But I, most Americans don't make that much money. Yeah. yeah. So I think that that's part of what's but, throwing but it when, off for people is like mm-hmm. a lot of Americans never dream of making six figures, much less, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, that much money. But but think about people, her counterparts, right? Oh, yes. You're absolutely her, right. You know, she has to like write five romance novels, <laughs> you know, lead these, you know, lead these nonprofits, go to Yale, take care of her parents. There's so, she's, a, she's single, right? She's a single. She is, yeah. She's and she's woman. also like the. You know, she's a member of the Georgia House, a leading member. You know, she's she's got responsibilities. And, you know, and and that's like a whole nother. Like, I would love to to just hear about um, because I do think that in a lot of ways and we don't want to talk about this, but being a single professional woman your all your expenses are double mm-hmm. <laughs> you know as a single professional woman like when i see my counterparts buying homes and just thinking about like we can't compare our experiences because you have two incomes yeah. mm-hmm. so that is something that you know this, to me like she when i think about my aspirations i look at her and i do see someone that yeah of course i don't make six figures and a lot of americans don't make six figures but if you think about someone that has the background that she does it's insane to me because we would never do that right. talk about sexism and especially mm. given how much money so many men throw into their own racism yeah. we've seen oh, totally. you know, billionaires fighting um, so another high profile woman whose results were disappointing for her, certainly and for Democrats generally, Claire McCaskill, the former now senator uh, from Missouri, lost her bid for reelection. Uh, she also voted against Kavanaugh. Was that a decisive factor in that race? I think it certainly didn't hurt. Um, I mean, Kavanaugh was generally unpopular around the country, but in a red state like Missouri, there were certainly a lot of people who supported him um, and and more than that, supported Trump. And she hasn't been quiet in the Senate. She has, you know, I guess more recently tried to equivocate a little bit or or bring herself to the center. But she is a very recognizable member of the Senate who speaks out frequently about women's issues and, you know, standing up to Trump. And so I that plus the fact that she had a, a legitimate opponent this time and not Todd Aiken, the guy who said that legitimate rape can never result in pregnancy, <laughs> certainly didn't help her. But yeah, not a huge surprise, but the margin of victory was d- disappointing for Democrats because it, it's one of those situations that happened in the 2016 election where polls don't really show the people who might not want to tell a pollster mm-hmm. that they support a, a racist mm-hmm. or people who don't answer their phones and just come out the day of yeah. and because they're motivated yeah. by Donald Trump's speeches. Well, a lot of this sounds really depressing, but Christina, I actually <laughs> tried my best to feel hopeful last night as I was staying up all night reading, you know, Twitter and everything else. And the one thing I kept thinking about were we broke records for how many women were elected. And a lot of those women were women of color and women of color who've never been elected before. Mm -hmm. Native American, Muslim, Somali. Can we talk about that a little bit? Let's be hopeful. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was incredibly exciting to see and and so many first time candidates. These were people who were a lot of times running in really difficult Democratic primaries, too. Lauren Underwood ran against several men and beat out several people in her primary. Um, Mary Gay Scanlon in Pennsylvania beat out a guy who was endorsed by Bernie Sanders. Um, and she's and she's very progressive. It's not like her district, you know, rejected Bernie Sanders, but all of which is to say she, a lot of these first time candidates, incredibly strong candidates who maybe in another election wouldn't even think of throwing their hat in the ring, came out 
and and won this time. And again, this just it gives me hope not only for this next Congress coming in, but for the sorts of infrastructure that's being built for next mm-hmm. time around and and what sorts of candidates the Democratic Party even thinks can be successful. A lot of the women who ran didn't have the support of the Democratic Party um, mm-hmm. or were sort of these insurgent candidates who ran grassroots campaigns and really inspired the people in their communities because they were people their communities already knew they were already involved in a school board in in civil rights law and and I do want to and I do want to keep with the hopeful you know spirit but I mean at the end of the day a lot of nations have made this these these milestones like a long long time yeah. ago so it is as inspiring as this is it's also just like my god <laughs> about damn time <laughs> you know yeah and I mean it's still a small fraction of Congress yes, um, yeah. but it's but it, it's a step and you can't get anywhere without the first step. <laughs> yeah. And and I did want to just circle back to what you were saying a couple of minutes ago Christina about uh voter rights and voter suppression and so on mm-hmm. and um I was very upset about Native American voter rights for example in North Dakota but we had something great happen in Florida. Oh yeah. Now I mean th- this is such a game changer about how many more people can vote now yeah. that can tip the whole state at this point. And yeah. it would have. I mean the the election between um Andrew Gillum and Ron DeSantis, I mean it's like 0.7. I'm looking at a poll as of right this second. 0.7% difference. Yeah. So, <laughs> so what Kristen is talking about is an initiative to reenfranchise felons which more than a million felons, including I read 40 percent of black men in Florida can't vote because they have felonies on their records. So this really is I I don't think you can overstate the impact that this could have on future elections. I don't think that we can definitively say how it will impact elections. But regardless, in terms of human rights, it is I I am incredibly happy about that decision. And I, I wasn't I was afraid to hope for the best um, for Florida voters in that situation. So that was a one of the best outcomes of the night, I think. I'd like to just uh, end talking about two issues that were on the ballot. First, there were several abortion-related measures. As I, in my view, kind of mixed results. Talk us through how the abortion-related measures went, Christina. Uh, so there were three major ones on the ballots across the country last night. There was... One in Oregon that would have prohibited public funding for abortions, sort of negating comprehensive law that was recently passed. There was one in West Virginia, too, that said it was an amendment to the state constitution to say that nothing in this constitution protects the right to abortion. So that will make it easier for the state to criminalize abortion if Roe v. Wade falls that amendment passed. The most immediate effect that that amendment will have that is not contingent on anything happening with Roe v. Wade is uh, another part of the amendment says nothing in this constitution protects the right to public funding for abortion. And the West Virginia Supreme Court decided a while back that they, they did interpret that right in the Constitution. So West Virginia does allow women on Medicaid to use insurance coverage for abortion. And so this, I mean, it'll happen very quickly, I assume, where they'll take that again to the court and, oh, look, the new amendment says there's no right to that in here. And women on Medicaid in West Virginia, which West Virginia has one of the highest rates of women on Medicaid, will no longer be able to access abortion care with their insurance. The other one was in Alabama, and that basically put rights for fetuses in the Constitution. So a similar thing where if something happens to Roe v. Wade, the state will easily be able to restrict abortion much more than it already does. So like you said, June, it's a mixed bag. I was really happy to see that Oregon will still have public funding for abortions available. I think this is one of the more important reproductive justice issues that uh, Democrats in particular are grappling with right now and trying to make the case for people who might support abortion rights but are like, why should my tax dollars go to Mm. abortions to make the case that, you know, if you don't support public funding for abortion and you don't want women on Medicaid to be able to use their insurance for abortion, you're basically only saying wealthy women have the right to abortion. And that's not a pro-choice at all. And I think that there are a couple people who have been able to make that case really strongly and well, but it's something that politicians are still working on. It's not like a a wave of anti-choice measures 
just swept the country. None of those results were really surprising. And and just to uh, not to rush us through too much, but what's the picture for LGBTQ rights? Colorado elected the nation's first openly gay governor, but Vermont's Christine Hallquist, who would have been the first transgender governor, lost her race in Vermont. Although we should note that Vermont generally favors incumbents and she had no state government experience. Um, and in Massachusetts, voters were asked whether they wanted to keep the civil rights protections for transgender people. How did that campaign play out? Massachusetts voted to uphold their non-discrimination law, which was so great and such a relief because this is a state that is generally progressive. It was the first state to legalize gay marriage and, you know, has has been known as a state that is very supportive of LGBT rights. So if this initiative hadn't passed there, I think it would have portended really bad things for uh, trans rights initiatives elsewhere. I also want to say that Kate Brown, the bisexual governor of Oregon, won re-election. So there's some advances in representation. Oh, Kim Davis lost. Yes. yes. Uh, The woman who refused to give out marriage licenses to gay couples in Kentucky, she lost. That was poetic and nice. And somebody made the point on Twitter that uh, the Masterpiece Cake Shop Bakery, the one that didn't want to bake a cake for a gay marriage, now has a gay governor. So that just feels (laughs) nice. You know, it's just kind of it's nice to see something like that happen. Um, So Kristen and Marilyn, what are your takeaways from this election? What will stay with you most, whether hopeful or otherwise? Well, not everything went the way I wanted it to, especially in Texas, for example. But I think that at the end of the day, I I had to remind myself that we wanted to say, Democrats, it's our turn to take the House. We succeeded in doing that. And there are all of these women, and particularly women of color, and all of these firsts. And mm-hmm. I am trying to stay excited about those things because awesome. it wasn't all crap. A lot of it, <laughs> a lot of it was good. And these are things to celebrate. Big picture, I'm zooming out. I feel <laughs> encouraged by this different strategies that were used. And just thinking about, like, I'm always thinking about the inside, outside. Like, in New York City here, we had a few propositions that we were voting on. And there were a lot of conversation about, like, well, do we want to give the governor more institutional power or not? Like, I feel like that essentially came down to the three things that we were voting on, from campaign finances to the role of community board community term limits on community boards and just the fact that people were thinking about that and that higher level I think that's the thing that has encouraged me the most is that we're understanding the way the system works and people are making strategic decisions around these things and not feeling like okay if this doesn't happen I'm out (laughs) I I guess for me like even though I live in a very comfortable, very bourgeois part of uh, Brooklyn, that we had like kind of terrible voting problems. Like the 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 polling place was a mess. There were really long lines, and like if you have problems like that in fancy rich neighborhoods, it, it's it's a reminder. I think that will get a lot of people stirred up that we really have to focus on. Uh, this, you know, these really major acts of voter suppression that are going on everywhere, as you've pointed out, there was this little ray of hope in Florida, or a significant ray of hope in Florida. And in Pennsylvania, the courts push back on gerrymandering. So this is, you know, the the way things are, it, we, we, it's, it feels pointless to be too hopeful about clear, to me, clear wrongs being addressed. Uh, but I'm I'm just kind of hoping for a bit more of a focus on actually giving people the right to use their vote and not just not making these ridiculous efforts mm-hmm. to prevent people to vote. It just seems so obvious. People, come on, America, wake up. <laughs> the other thing, I mean, I've only really been paying attention to the the big wins and losses from last night. I am really excited in coming days to read more about the state houses that got flipped and the women who won their local seats. I uh, just mm. saw this morning that my middle school guidance counselor, who I think was the first lesbian oh. who I ever knew and like understood what that was, <laughs> became the first Democrat elected to the New Hampshire state house from my town since the 30s, since the 1930s. So almost 100 Whoa, years, my wow. town has not sent a Democrat to the state legislature. And my middle school guidance counselor did it. And it's because, like, <laughs> she knows everyone in the town. Everyone's kids love her. Like, mm-hmm. I, it's stories like that and and seeing 
progressives put resources toward local races and seeing people run for local races because they saw Donald Trump run for mm-hmm. the presidency and he was not qualified. And so they're like, yeah. damn it, I'm qualified for my state legislature or whatever. Like th- those are things that I think, you know, 10, 15 years down the line are going to make a difference. So, yeah, th- that's that's what I'm going to be looking at in coming days is those smaller races that will make big differences in their communities, even if they don't get attention on the national stage. Christina, you managed to end this topic on a note of hope. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you for joining us after a very long night. That was it's ironic to hear because Christina's the host. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> thank you, Christina. And and listeners, if you have thoughts about the midterms and how women's issues shook out at the ballot box, please write to us at thewaves at slate.com. All right, before we get to our next topic, I just want to remind listeners that on September, November 17th, The Waves will have a live show in Miami as part of the Miami Book Fair. Can I come? I mean, I read books. Hold on, did you say September? (laughs) Oh, thank you, thank you. Thank you. On Saturday, November 17th, uh, The Waves will have a live show in Miami as part of the Miami Book Fair. Verilyn, I can't uh, <laughs> let you go because I'm not going either. Uh, oh, so it's so um, Hannah, Hannah Noreen, and Christina will be talking okay. to authors Rebecca Traster and Ooh. Celeste Ng. For more details and to get tickets, go to slate.com/live. I oh, love them. Wow, yeah, I know. Good, pretty cool authors, huh? Good yeah. guess. Uh, and also, uh, if we have any listeners in Melbourne, Australia, I will be there. On Wednesday, December 5th, uh, at the Wheeler Center in Melbourne, talking about podcasts and being a judge on a contest called So You Think You Can Pod. Oh, wow. So if you are in Melbourne, Australia or the Environ, please come to the Wheeler Center on December 5th to talk about podcasts or Slate or just have a chat with me and to join in the So You Think You Can Pod contest. Okay, let's turn our attention to our second topic, Christmas movies aimed at women. There are a lot of them. In 2017 alone, Hallmark made 33 original movies and the cover of my TV guide says there are going to be 52 uh, on television this year. And the films that Hallmark aired last year were viewed by more than 80 million people. But it's not just Hallmark. Freeform, formerly known as ABC Family, also takes on a holiday movie focus at this time of year presented, I should note, by the Old Spice guy, as I think of him. (laughs) And Netflix is also getting in on the action. They just released a film called The Holiday Calendar, which I personally find very charming. Uh, Kristen, you suggested this topic and you're a huge fan of these movies. Should we all be watching them? And if so, why? Oh, absolutely. And I know that they get made fun of a lot for being predictable, for being saccharine, for being stupid, for being heteronormative, for focusing too much on banal aspects of small town life. I totally understand all the criticism they receive. But number one, I love Christmas. I am a Christmas fanatic. I'm a complete Christmas nut. That's number one reason why everyone should watch these movies, because they are filled with Christmas magic. (laughs) But number two... They are feminist. When you look at what is released in mainstream cinemas from Hollywood, over two-thirds of the speaking roles go to men. In these made-for-TV movies, it's completely flipped on its ear. Women have agency. They have careers. They have families. They have love lives. They have cute pets. They have the whole thing. (laughs) And um, a lot of them are not very likable women. They're women who maybe are great at their jobs, but they're not good at being family members or they're not good members of their community. And however despicable they might be, in the end, they do come around and they have an emotional (laughs) arc. And there's something very enjoyable about watching people in the end, have their hearts go to a good place and for kindness to be rewarded. What's not to love about that? Well, what is not to love? Marilyn, what's not to love? Do you like Christmas movies? Well, I mean, I will say that I love corny things. <laughs> and so Christmas movies kind of intersect in my like comfort zone of just like, I just want to watch something that is uncomplicated, that's going to make me feel good, that's going to make me cry maybe, make <laughs> me laugh. Um, I love to sing, that's going to make me sing <laughs> along with them. But I mean, I will say that it was it was nice to watch a holiday calendar. That's the new um, Netflix The movie. new Netflix one. And then also Kristen recommended the one with um, Tia Mori. Uh, the uh, Mistletoe. mistletoe. 
tones. Um, the Mr. Tones. <laughs> um, then I watched, I tried to watch um, Miss Me This Christmas, which is like um, another one that was on Netflix that was with the woman from um, Designated Survivor. Oh, Survivor's Remorse, not Designated Survivor. Oh, which one? Mary Chuck? Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> Gotta check Netflix. that out, but it wasn't good. But it wasn't good. Mm. Um, so my goal originally was to try to watch Christmas movies with all black cast or mm. like majority black cast, but that, that was after those two. <laughs> that is a very good point. I'm gonna I, I am going to note that Hallmark in particular is very guilty of having very, very, very white casts. I think that Freeform, formerly ABC Family, has always done a better job with that. And I think mm. that's partly because they're part of the Disney Corporation. Right. Okay. And Disney has made it part of their agenda for the last several decades to try to target future customers and they looked at the demographics of america and saw how many children of color were being born every year and so they tried a lot harder whereas the hallmark channel seems to use pretty much the same rotating cast mm-hmm. um, candace cameron burr a lot of them used to be on <laughs> Kelly full house <laughs> a lot of them on full house yeah or other uh cw shows uh, i th- we watched also or some of us watched uh Christmas at Pemberley Manor, which I think was the first of this year's. Not good. Not good. And not I, good. but I did recognize that the lead actress uh, used to play Silver on Nine Hundred Two One Zero. Oh, that's what she was from. Bad. And I think when you're watching these movies, you have a lot of that. Oh, which CW show was she on? <laughs> you know, and, and even in uh, hol- the holiday calendar, um, the the Josh, the the lead male, the the love interest. One he was home? he was on Star, uh, the Fox show. Oh, uh, okay. You know, with with Queen Latifah. And, okay. And, yeah. And the father on a holiday calendar was he the father from um, This Is Us? Uh, a grandfather, Mr. Robot. yeah. The, the grandfather, gra- yeah. He's on Mister Robot too. Ah, yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of crossover. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, and and that does. It's funny because I have that feeling of like, how realistic is this? Mm. <laughs> um, but then, of course, nothing about these movies is realistic. Nothing whatsoever. But that's you, fine. No, I mean, and it is that, absolutely. Think about how many action movies like. Yeah. How many mm. times can 75-year-old Sylvester Stallone go in with a gun and save everybody? Or how, how many, many times uh, can that happen? Yeah, or how many times can people... I mean, the thing that kills me on those movies is that nobody ever gets killed. Like, nobody ever stays <laughs> dead. You know, they come back, they're big... Oh, guess what? They're going to come back from the dead. They always come back from the dead. You're not safe yet. I mean, like, everything is so predictable on those movies, too. It's true. Um, but it is interesting that, at least on Freeform, and it seems on Netflix, because mm-hmm. on the holiday calendar... Not only was the lead actress who was in a biracial family and and is herself from a biracial family, and the mayor of this small town was Latina. Uh, So it was a very happy, diverse, you know, prosperous family. One thing that strikes me in all of these (laughs) movies, there's a lot of shopping in in the streets, on the high streets and main streets of these towns. Like, in real life, we all know everybody gets everything from Amazon. (laughs) There are no Amazon boxes on these shows. Um... But the the vision that they're presenting is of these happy, prosperous, diverse mm-hmm. towns. And whether or not we think, oh, how realistic is that? Like, that's a pretty cool, yeah. unrealistic vision, right? I, I you know, I, I could admit that maybe I don't know a lot about. I was in Utah last year and I was I had never been to Utah. I've never been to a town like this. So when I watched these movies, I also watched A Christmas Inheritance that's on Netflix. Oh, mm-hmm. I didn't see that one. And so like that was about going back to a New York City um, socialite going back to her small town to learn a little bit about humility and where her father is from and love and thinking about others. You know. <laughs> so in a way though, I think, you know, you were talking about there's an arc, but it is, it does remind me a little bit of, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing because I don't mind if, if Tyler Perry movies was not representative of like what black film or the only the only way you see black people on, on TV, I wouldn't have a problem with it because I think that it fills a need and there's an audience for it, so it should exist. But the arc in some of these Christmas movies remind me of the arc in a lot of Tyler Perry movies, where it's like a woman has to be changed or brought down or, or realized that she needs to be a better person, which... Again, it's great that it exists, and I'm, but it's, if it was the only thing, it would be a problem, right? Like, if this is the only representation of what happens when you're a, a ambitious woman or a woman that, you know, um, wants to lead your father's company, if the only way for you to be able to get that is to, like, be brought down or humbled in some way, then that would be problematic. But in the world of Christmas and love and thinking about others, it's great. Uh, but, you know, I guess I, as a person that thinks about representation, I get... I feel 
the responsibility to just be like, but we need more representation or this isn't the, like there's always that asterisk to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, and essentially these, at least I, I'm not typically a watcher of these movies. I've never been like a Christmas movie watcher of any kind. Um, so it's not that I'm like looking down on these t- made for TV films. I just generally don't watch holiday movies. But I was struck that at least the five or six that I watched in the last few days, they were all essentially rom-coms. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that is a yes. a kind of movie, a genre that, I don't know, that you hear it said that the rom-com is dying so often that you think, well, it can't be dying if there's so many opportunities for these pieces. But, you know, the predictable arc, the comfortingly predictable arc of all rom-coms is meet cute, conflict, oh my God, they hate each other. <laughs> oh my God, something happens and they realize actually, no, they look. So, I mean, yeah. the, the, the predictability of it is, you know, part of the engagement. But one of the uh, pieces that we read uh, as our research mentions, like identified three types of people that exist in these movies. Good people who love Christmas, bad people who dislike Christmas, and confused people who have forgotten they love Christmas. Yes. <laughs> and that is totally true, right? It's like, But I think that all also goes back to what the original Christmas uh, story is for a lot of us in the Western world, which is Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. And we just go back to those tropes over and over and over again. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. In a way, Not it's at all. Drawing, in a way, it's, you know, drawing inspiration from a place that we all understand and know. And I wanted to bring up one other topic that I think is important about this, which is the work that it gives the people who are in these movies. Because you know how a mainstream Hollywood film is only going to try to cast the same 20 people in every movie? We know you can headline a blockbuster. All of these movies, they not only are bringing back stars from TV shows 20 years ago, like Full House, but they're also taking chances on people who are not known at all and giving actors actual jobs and giving the staff that work on films actual jobs. And they're mostly low budget and they're mostly either made in the U.S. or just over the border in Canada. There's a lot of people saying, oot. How about that? How about Christmas? How about Happy Christmas? Let's put some hockey. Yeah, but I I think that it's important that, yes, for all of the predictability, these movies do things to help the people who are making them. And they provide something that isn't being provided for for um, women and representation. But and but going back to the the Hallmark Channel in particular, I was surprised to to read that the origins of Hallmark Channel came from a faith came from a channel called Faith and Values and that a lot of you know the predictable a lot of the ways in which they the comforting it comes from Christian roots and wanting to give their audience this wholesome picture of what programming should be and um you know and then they like these audience they like these characters cuz that's what the audience likes and that's what the audience wants to see so it's interesting to see the way that um marketing and targeting um, programming comes into this intersection of comfortability and Christmas and love, but also wholesome television. But there's, it was surprising to me, uh, again, as somebody who like knows they exist, knew the kind of business story, but Mm -hmm. didn't really watch them. They're set at Christmas. They are about, for the most part, people who celebrate Christmas. And yet there's no mention of God. And there's, Mm -hmm. but there is often supernatural elements so in uh, a holiday calendar, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, in the holiday calendar, there's this kind of enchanted advent calendar, <laughs> and in another one that I watched, uh, well, actually, uh, Christmas at Pemberley Manor. Mm-hmm. Essentially, the Santa Claus is there, but you don't actually see. And there's an implication, like it's weirdly vague, that he transports the the male hero, the lead, the 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 love interest, magically. From one place to another so that he can, you know, tell the woman that he loves her. Um, so there's like supernatural elements in many of these movies, but not actual religion. It's almost like... I mean, and I, what do you call a burning bush that talks to you? Isn't well, that, no, exactly. Yeah. But, but like, isn't that kind of an insult to people of faith? Like, oh, it's just a supernatural, like magical element. I don't think Christmas, culturally speaking, is about faith at all. It's about. Oh, I disagree. I mean, culturally speaking, I think religiously. Culturally, yeah, I'm well, talking about the bigger cultural landscape mm. of America. I don't think it's religious. I think it's about Santa. I think it's about <laughs> Frosty. I think it's about reindeer. It's about 
Love Actually. It's about a lot of <laughs> oh, things that, that. Oh God, they're uh, me the too. Worst. I'm so glad you you immediately differentiated made for TV from the motion picture because I was like, thank God, yes. I don't have to. I've never watched Love Actually. actually. Oh, don't, terrible, yeah, don't, don't awful, watch it. Awful. That's always what people tell me, so I've never have. Uh, yeah, I call it crap actually, but <laughs> but. But, you know, Christmas, culturally speaking, again, I'm not saying religiously. I think religiously, obviously, it's the manger. It's, you know, it's Birth baby of, Jesus. The Lord Jesus. Yes. Yeah, it's the three kings and so on. But I think but culturally I think the speaking. Instead of culturally, I would say commercially or like American. You know what I mean? Because I do think culturally feels like I culturally. I pop culture, I should pop say. Pop culture, okay. Yes, pop culture, and, I should say. And the, since you brought up commerce, I mean, these movies are basically set you know again i saw five or six not not to bring make too sweeping a generalization <laughs> but the ones that i watched were so focused on commerce so many i mean partly of course that's so they can have shots of cars and mm, you know mm-hmm, get that in mm-hmm. but uh, you know lots of shopping lots of scenes of of commerce happening that seems to you know buying gifts for each other that seems to be you know commerce is very very present in a it's way interesting that a lot of the ones i watched were about music like the yeah, music, yeah. Music, baking co- cookies baking. yeah lots yeah. of baking cookies yeah, it, oh cookies. my god so much baking and eating cookies <laughs> even though you're like that guy i've seen his body in another show there's no way that guy's eating a cookie in at least 10 years um yeah and if your name is joy or holly you, you and you're and you can sing you will at some point you maybe want to look around for a camera because you're probably in a Christmas movie okay one last question before we go um, uh, I'm just I was I'm just going to push back a little bit because we've, we've given a lot of love to these movies like isn't the appeal of these movies basically conservative they're very nostalgic very much looking toward the past which is presented as this happy place you know before we all started working like crazy but you know, as black, Asian and lesbian women, respectively, like we all know that the past really wasn't necessarily or really hardly ever better than the present for many of us. Are we comfortable with this nostalgic, uh, hazy nostalgia that really is like the the big takeaway in these movies? Mm. Oh, yeah. I'm totally fine with it. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the one thing I wish would change, and, and, and I think they have been gradually getting more and more diverse racially over the last few decades. I mean, I've been watching these my entire life, wow. and I studied them in college. Um, but they've been gradually, racially speaking, getting more diverse. What does a family look like has gotten much more diverse over the years. A lot of these movies feature a single mom, mm-hmm. um, a family that is you know headed up by a grandmother instead of a mom and dad and so on. So the family structures are getting more diverse However, I cannot think of a single made-for-TV Christmas movie that features gay people mm. or trans mm. people. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So that's very much missing. Yeah. Um, Asian Americans, there aren't a lot of people who look like me in the movies. Yes, Vanessa Hudgens is half Asian, and she is in one of the Netflix movies coming up, and I'm excited to watch it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, people like me aren't usually featured in these Christmas movies. Right. Yeah. Right. I think, like like I mentioned at the top of the show, I was this is what I was doing last night, right? Yes, yes. So I think whenever, like, when I want something comfortable, when I want something predictable, when I don't want to, when I want to turn off my intersectionality lens and just have a <laughs> night, you know, I think Christmas movies are one of the places that I will now turn to because, and it's interesting because I'm, it's interesting because whenever I'm on this show and I talk about like a, um, a rom com or like loving <laughs> corny things, June and Kristen, are like, oh sure, I feel like the three of us are like sitting at this the 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 middle of the target audience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, but I think the moment I start thinking about these issues, yeah, it gets harder to just sit and watch it and think about like. Okay, like there was a moment in the inheritance where um, they are going to find a homeless man and they're bringing him in. And it's just like, you know, white man. And he's just like, I mean, when you think about the face of homelessness, (laughs) maybe, maybe not, you know, like why? Maybe it's because of the town. Like the more you think about it, the more you could poke holes in, in, in the peacefulness and serenity and the comfort of it. But it's a choice to just be comfortable self-care people self-care all right listeners what are your favorite movies are are we wrong to see them as anything other than insidious heteronormative (laughs) christian propaganda (laughs) write to us with your views at thewaves at slate.com all right our final topic this week is the way that brazilian women are responding to the election of jair bolsonaro as brazil's next president He's a far-right military officer who is a gross misogynist. He reportedly told a congresswoman that he wouldn't rape her because she's ugly. He opposed femicide laws that imposed 
harsher penalties for gender-motivated killings of women. He said his only daughter, he also has four sons, was born due to his wife's weakness. He's a peach. According to oh a God. great piece by Adriana Carranza in The Atlantic, after Bolsonaro won the October 28th runoff election, some Brazilian women started to replace their social media profiles with a black square that included, for some of them, the word luto, which means morning and I fight. Marilyn, what did you make of Bolsonaro's election and the luto response? It just felt like an even more extreme version, uh, if there could be an extreme version <laughs> of Trump. Um, and in a way, it was extremely depressing um, to think about, OK, well, we had was was Brexit before Trump. I'm all everything is mixed up. But first we had Brexit. Then we had Trump. And now in the largest democratic nation in Latin America, we have Bolsonaro. My my Portuguese pronunciation is not as good as you. <laughs> and, you know, in the ways and, and, and Brazilian women, even before he was elected, were very highly motivated not to get him elected. And in the way like for him, to, like it's almost like the women's march. But before. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. And apparently hundreds of thousands of women have taken to the streets have been these enormous marches after the election. I mean, it's we are like uh, Josh Keating wrote a great piece in Slip, but like, don't compare everything in the world to Trump. However, there do seem to be just a so lot many. of parallels here. But then, in a, I mean, like even more extreme, like he he supported the what was the name of the guy that was torturing the one that's well, in jail? Yeah. right. So when he when when Bolsonaro voted to impeach uh, Dilma Rousseff, he dedicated his vote to the former leader of the Brazilian military. Junta, who had tortured people, who was in charge of torturing, including having tortured Dilma Rousseff. So, you know, he has verbally and in a very public way stated his support for, you know, this really shameful history of torture and military dictatorship in his country. And he is, of course, a former member of the military. It's it's really depressing, right? Oh, it's really depressing. And yeah, just to echo what Verilyn was saying, when I see what's happening in Brazil, what I see is what's happening in the world. And I think, um, the you know, how many more places are going to be electing people like this and who have such heinous beliefs, who are so misogynist, who are so terrible? And how can all the people who are electing these people in see these things about them? Which are so reprehensible and still vote mm-hmm. them in. Yeah, yeah, and and in the in the name of Christianity, right? Yeah, yeah. a lot of yes. the, you know the evangelicals in Brazil are the ones that are backing him, and you know I just like I don't get how someone that could be for Jesus can like also decide that someone that's into torturing that says that you know there is a reason why a woman should or shouldn't be raped right like you know you wouldn't have deserved to be raped is something that he said yeah, he said yeah. you know she was too ugly this she was too like what are you like how how do, how do you see a connection in yeah. these two things well so let's talk about some of the reasons that people have suggested that bolsonaro was elected given that People, you know, the the most popular politician apparently in Brazil is still Lula, the former president, the socialist president who made all these incredible socialist reforms. He is, however, in prison for corruption. So Mm -hmm. that makes it hard to vote for him. But, you know, the fact that there has been a huge amount of corruption, very public, uh, very, you know, corruption that was exposed and the people who managed to avoid exposure can kind of point and say, look, I'm clean. I'm clean. Mm. Bolsonaro being one of these people. Mm. And the fact that there's just really, there's so much violent crime in Brazil where women are especially targeted and are especially fearful and vulnerable. And that, you know, crime and corruption maybe are the factors that overcome, you know, the things that you're talking about, that overcome political, just like, goodness morality it's it's a kind of a very sad situation that when we when we ask why would people of good heart vote mm. for a guy like this and that those are the only reasons that people can come up with it seems well supposedly his constituents are the same people who love Donald Trump though they are more rural more working class they're into the BBB beef bible and bullets it's kind of you know not that different from how we Look at what what a very common Trump voter would be, right? And for and right those things that represent different things for different people, you know, that are positive aspects for 
one half of the country or one section of the country and very negative aspects for another. It is interesting, though, I mean, so not to get too bogged down in these very sad and depressing aspects of the story, but that there have been these protests, that there were, you know, hashtag protests, which seem not particularly likely to bring change, but still a representative of something. So before the election, there was a big hashtag protest when a TV judge, I guess, on a cooking show made very publicly like really sexual comments about like a mm-hmm. 12-year-old. 12-year-old. And there was, a, uh, there was a hashtag campaign that was something like Primera Sado, which means, you know, first harassment. And then Mm -hmm. there was also a hashtag campaign against... More than 82,000 posts were used with the hashtag. And that was before the Me Too movement. Exactly, before Me Too. And then during the election, there was another campaign of like, Ele now, Ele nunca, which means not him, never him. Mm. Which, you know, again, well... Not never or not now, because now and and ever he is going to be the president come January. But mm. still good that, um, you know, after being repressed during the military, you know, the feminist movement was very repressed during the military dictatorship, that women are very underrepresented in, you know, in legislatures in Brazil, that maybe it's a sign of like enough already. The person that he that, that lost to him, Fernando Haddad, um Nearly 60% of young women voted for him. But I just, I was very much um, consumed by thinking about that other 40%. Yeah. <laughs> and I was just wondering, like, why? I think my biggest question when I think about this story and I think about Trump um, is, like, why do we hate women so much? Mm. And including other women, right? Yeah. yeah. And last year alone, nearly 45,000 deaths and 60,000 rapes were reported by women alone in Brazil. And that's just reported. And that's just reported. So I don't understand, you know, how even within such a, a, a consorted movement by women for women that, you know, there's possibly 40 Forty percent of women that voted for this guy. Yeah, I well, mean, and, and we should also mention that after these hashtags and Facebook groups and organizing, there were also apparently huge Facebook groups supporting women supporting Bolsonaro. Yeah, and the women who were protesting him received death threats. They received yeah. all sorts of. Oh, I God, mean, yeah. they, and their family members, their mothers, other members of their family were being threatened for speaking out against him. Yeah. And there was, and also being hacked. The Facebook was being hacked. Yes, and it reminded me. I mean, it's such. Okay, so here is the hope mm, that I'm you. trying bring to have. Bring it to us. Bring it to us. We need it. We need it. <laughs> it's well, first of all, that we that we have to recognize that these are tactics that are being used over and over mm-hmm. and over again, right? And so now that we know this, and it's like so plainly to this gen to not, I, mean, I don't even consider myself in this generation anymore. I'm so impressed by younger people than me. Like we're being awoken to these different tactics. Now that we know the tactics, we can fight against them, right? And then we could also look to history and see similar tactics in the way like history is just repeating itself. And like the more I'm like, I feel like I keep it's like almost like I, I I've causes that initial shock and that initial like sadness and depression almost but then you have to realize oh this is just the same thing in a different in a different coat right and Mm -hmm, so it's like mm -hmm. okay great i know how to fight this so that is what i offer as hope like that's like even as a journalist that reports on this it's like okay i know this now like (laughs) let's let's make the connections for people you know i love your hope i i I, I need to get some of that you need to like you know, give me a hug so some of that can rub off on me because <laughs> I find a lot of this really discouraging. And to go back to what you were saying about why are women doing it to themselves and why are so many women invested in a patriarchy that doesn't benefit them? Mm-hmm. Well, that's because in some ways it does benefit them yeah. if they are the correct race yes. or the correct religious mm-hmm. leaning and so yeah. on. It's it, uh, the correct sexual orientation, what have yeah. you. And to benefit yourself at the expense of everybody else. There but- were women that were against the suffrage movement, right? Because <laughs> yes, and they yes. were invested in white supremacy. Like so like that's what I mean. Like if you really think about it and you really look to history, you notice that, oh, this has happened before. And like they were invested in it because they thought that the patriarchy would protect them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like it always goes back to Hamay's tail and the finger. <laughs> <laughs> That's or, a spoiler for people who don't know what the finger is. Yes. Yeah. Or just to Audre Lorde, your silence will not protect Amen. you. Amen. Yeah. yeah. All right. Listeners, if there's anything about the Brazilian elections or the women's response to them that you'd like us to know about, please write to us at thewaves@slate.com. All right. Now it's time for recommendations. Kristen, what have you got for us? I am so pumped because <laughs> in the last week I discovered 
Life of the Party, the movie starring Melissa McCarthy, and I've watched it twice in the last week. Oh. This is a movie in which <laughs> Melissa McCarthy plays a woman whose daughter is finishing up her senior year in college. And she herself was a college dropout. And after some circumstances in her life go awry, spoiler alert, her husband leaves her. She decides she's going to go back to college and finish that degree. Whoa. And with her daughter? With her daughter. I do. I've seen this preview. (laughs) And it is so funny and it is so full of joy. And one thing I love about movies like this, and she also in Spy, I loved her for this as well. They never make fun of Melissa McCarthy. Mm. I think a lot of directors or writers who um, are less smart would find a way to make fun of her because she doesn't look like Hollywood because she has Mm. the wrong body type or whatever they want to say about her. She's the wrong age. But the movie never makes fun of her. It's never at her expense. It's really just following her journey in hilarious fashion. And she's so kind and so open-minded and so funny. And all of those things get rewarded in the end. And it's so good to see somebody who is good be rewarded while you laugh your head off. Mm. I actually watched it the first time on a plane ride back from a business trip. And I got the stink eye from neighbors sitting around me because I did the laugh clap. Ah! I did this multiple times. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm that person on the plane. I've got to go home and watch this tomorrow. So then I watched it the next day. But it is so joyous. So please watch Life of the Party starring Melissa McCarthy. Wow, that is such an endorsement. I will do just that. I, I will. will. It's on my list. Immediately go out <laughs> and do that. And you know what? I have to just, it reminds me of one of the heartwarming stories from Tuesday's election, which was Sharice Davids, one of the first Native American women mm. to be elected uh, who to Congress, who I was looking at her website and she said that she was a first generation uh, college graduate in her family. But then her mom went back to school after she did. And so she now calls herself a formerly first generation college graduate. (laughs) And it was a very heartwarming story. You know, you and I are both first generation college graduates, Kristen. So we're (laughs) representing for that. Uh, Verilyn, what do you want to recommend for us? I am going to recommend um, all the work (laughs) of Imani Perry, who is a professor... L, professor of African-American studies at Princeton University. This year, she released not one, not two, but three books. <laughs> Whoa, how does she have time? Uh, I mean, just doing all the things. Um, the first one was uh, Maybe Forever Stand, um, is the history of the Black National Anthem. Oh. Uh, <laughs> the second one is Vexing on Gender and Liberation. That's more of an academic look at Black feminism. And the one that I want to highlight the most is Looking for Lorraine, which is a biography of Lorraine Hansberry. Ooh. And... First of all, this is, I mean, who hasn't read The Raisin in the Sun? And I was just surprised by how much I just didn't know about this woman. Um, her role, I mean, we talk about like taking an eye's view on everything that's going on and, and learning from our history. She was so involved in the civil rights movement. And one of the things that was most interesting to read about was that she got a D in, in, in playwright. Oh my goodness. In, in, in theater. And so, I mean, it's just like a story about like this, like thinking about like our lives and not linear. Mm-hmm. Um, and even the un, untold story we can learn so much about from politics to, to being a, a, a woman. In a, in a family of different economic factors. And ultimately, what I really um, what I really appreciated about, I went to this reading where Amani Perry was talking about where I'm writing and researching the book. And, you know, we talk a lot about, at least I talk a lot about black, like who gets to tell, who who pulls up and tells black women's stories. And a lot of times when you really look at it, it's other black women. And, you know, and even the way she's holding it, of course, everyone is knocking down her door now for movie rights. And she feels this responsibility of, of like this woman's story and, and not just, you know, another and holding true to a lot of the values as far as the way she wanted to be represented and the things she shared and the things that she didn't share. Um, so it also taught me a lot about process and what it means to like not and what it means to tell a story, but also like value it and hold it and guard it and guard it. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Wow. No, I wish I'd gone to that reading. All right. For the second week in a row, I am going to recommend something that I found interesting, but not particularly good. (laughs) I watched all eight episodes of the final season of House of Cards. The first day it was released, as I've done every season, even though I don't even like everything. I know. I know. Exactly. In the midst of everything. And even though I've never particularly liked the show, but I just kind of it's almost like an obligation at this point. And also this season, you know, the first and now only 
post-Kevin Spacey season where Claire Underwood, at least as she's called at the beginning of the season, uh, became president or was president. And there, even though it was like narratively just a mess, um, there were some fantastic roles for middle-aged women, you know, <laughs> yes, so, you know yes. middle-aged white women pretty much. But, um, you know, Jane Atkinson, uh, Diane Lane, Patricia Clarkson, Robin Wright. Um, and there's some fun bits of like feminist fan service or wish fulfillment, which I won't spoil. Um, it, it it didn't make much sense, but it also wasn't a complete waste of time, which, you know, if that's not a rousing endorsement, I don't know what is. <laughs> Uh, I don't so, think it is. Yeah, so I don't know. Like, can I recommend it? Not really, but I do recommend it. If you uh, want to complete, like, you won't want to mm-hmm. poke your eyes out afterwards. But <laughs> is, is there like a is it like an end? There is an end. It's not okay. satisfactory, but there is okay. an end. Yes. Uh, uh, also of, on my list, but it's, it's done. Gonna, it's, it's far, far down. Yeah. No. And and what's funny is that show that used to actually, like, again, not very convincingly, though, like, the lead characters had these kind of sidekick relationships with black characters, like, pretty much all the people of color just disappeared in the final season. Oh, it's okay. weird. Yeah. Mm. So, hey, recommend. All right. <laughs> um, that's our show for today. Thank you to our production assistant, Alex Barish, and our producer, Danielle Hewitt. You can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at June Thomas. Kristen is at Kristen Meinzer. And Verilyn is at Verilyn Media. If you like The Waves, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen, because it really helps people to find the show. For Kristen and Verilyn, I'm June Thomas. Thanks for listening.